Welcome to the July 2014 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dalgan. This month, a new technique that can preserve livers for up to four days ahead of transplantation. It could potentially revolutionize the way we store and share organs. Tiny organs in a dish that can help researchers study cancer-causing mutations. We are able to very accurately model both uh, multi-hit requirements as well as glandular structures of uh, histologic features of tumors in vivo. Plus, the colonization of meningococcus, a gene linked to urogenital development, and an imaging system for eye disease. But first, a super cool new way to store livers. In the United States right now, there are around 17,000 people with end-stage liver disease waiting for a life-saving liver transplant. This year, approximately one-third of these people will receive a donor liver, but some 1,400 people will unfortunately die waiting for the organ they need. Part of the problem stems from the lack of suitable donors. But according to Korkut Ugen, a bioengineer at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Part of the problem boils down to the way organs are preserved ahead of surgery. The state of the art today is you recover an organ, flush it with a specialized solution, and put it in a box of files, and then run to the hospital where the recipient is as fast as you can because the organ is effectively suffocating while in this uh, box of files. That gives you a preservation time of about 12 hours, 24 max, which really isn't that much time to get livers from the donors to the recipients. To lengthen the shelf life, Hugen and his colleague developed a new supercooling method. As they report this month in Nature Medicine, this sub-zero preservation technique allowed the transplant of rat livers preserved for up to three or even four days. It is still a complicated process. You have to have these, you know, machinery and pumps and everything. But it could potentially revolutionize the way we store and share organs. To see the technique in action, I headed over to Mass General where I met up with Boat Brunsma. He's a visiting PhD student from the University of Amsterdam and a study co-author. This protocol is, is kind of based on supercooling itself, which is the cooling of the liver to this sub-zero temperature, which improves preservation. But to be able to facilitate that, we actually need to add a number of other components, which includes this machine perfusion system. So there's a, a tiny little rat liver in a glass dish with some kind of tube poking into it, what are the fluids here and what are, what's going on? Right, so this, this perfusion system has a number of components. It has this organ chamber, which uh, is where the liver is lying in, and it has an oxygenator and a bubble trap to prevent bubbles from going to the liver. So we recirculate this cell culture media called Williams Medium E in the beginning with cryoprotectants, and we, we just recirculate that through, through the liver. And the green solution that you see um, around these components is actually antifreeze. And it allows us to cool the components of the liver down to the temperature that we want it to be. So let's, let's turn this thing on. Sure. So we've just turned the pump on, and we're perfusing this, uh, this liver with this cell culture media that contains these cryoprotectants. So you can see the solution that's uh, circulating through the system goes into the liver through the portal vein and comes out again on the venous side, and then it recirculates for an hour like this. And so then after an hour of this, then it goes into the chamber for one, two, up to four days, depending on how long you need to preserve the liver for before you can actually put it into the recipient? 
Correct, yeah. So once it goes into the chiller, it's actually static, so it's not being perfused anymore. It's just very, very cold. What is it that allows for three, sometimes four days of storage in this setup? So the hypothesis behind this is that cooling the liver down even further reduces the metabolism of the liver even further and allows for longer preservation. So current liver preservation is just based on cooling it on ice. So you're going from body temperature, 37 degrees, to 4 degrees Celsius, uh, which gives you a substantial reduction in metabolism. So we theorize that reducing the temperature even further to minus 6 would allow us to better preserve the liver and get an even longer preservation time. And this has all been tested on livers that you take directly from, from a rat donor, and it goes straight into the treatment. But in the real world, thinking of the human scenario, oftentimes it's from someone who's died recently as a registered organ donor. And so there's a period when the liver's been sitting in a, you know, a dead body, to put it bluntly. Could this system work for that situation as well? Right, that's that's a great point. We actually think that this this system is going to be applicable to those livers in in particular as well. Those livers are injured, so they would benefit the most from this kind of preservation. Um, the extra injury that occurs during the cold preservation of these kind of livers uh, can be detrimental to these organs. So if we can prevent that kind of injury in these already injured organs, um, then we might actually be able to use more of these livers for transplantation. You can read more about the supercooling organ technique on our website, nature.com slash naturemedicine. Moving from the liver to the eye, we have a report out this month about a new imaging approach that can peer deep into the eye's retina. Using this technique, scientists showed that they could detect and follow abnormalities in the retinal tissue of live mice simply by shining specialized lasers through their pupils. And with the system's advanced optics, the researchers could record these changes in the mouse retina well before any pathological symptoms became evident. Grzyna Poljetska is the director of medical device development at a company called Polgenics and the first author of the new study. We are developing here the imaging platform for non-invasive investigation of biochemical processes that sustain our vision. This capability is needed for early prediction of the severity of age and disease-related changes in the retina. So you're basically just shining a laser down someone's eye, kind of like what happens when anyone goes to the optometrist, obviously a different kind of light, but is that the experience? That's very similar. You shine the laser light through the pupil, and then the light is focused on the retina, and it excites fluorophores at the retina, and then we collect the fluorescence that is coming from these fluorophores. How do you envision this technique being used? This technique could be used as a screening tool. It is uh, that people that go for the exam, for the eye exam, will also get uh, the two-photon image, and it would be saved as some reference, and it will be not only the image, but also the particular metrics that we have developed, which is the ratio of fluorescence emitted with the different excitation wavelength. And that could be tracked over the age and over the age of the person, just to see if it stays in the normal range or if it starts to deviate from that. That could help lead to earlier diagnosis of problems like age-related macular degeneration and other eye diseases. And once that diagnosis has been made, I suppose the technique could also be used to track uh, the efficacy of drug treatments? 
Yes, exactly. You nail it. Because once we know the signature, one could then measure on the temporal basis uh, the progression of this lesion or maybe perhaps whether these lesions will be disappearing. So that is uh, one of the ways. That's why we also think that this technology will be extremely useful for the drug development as it will allow to detect minute changes in the retina in response to drug treatment. At Polgenics, your Cleveland, Ohio startup company, you're actually trying to develop an instrument to commercialize this technology. What stage are you at with that? Right now, we are in discussion with the commercial partner about commercializing this, uh, this technology. However, our first, um, what will need to happen is, of course, extensive safety studies, first in mice and then in humans. Korzina Polzetska. Coming up, organoid models of cancer, but first, we turn to a particularly nasty bacterial menace. The meningococcus bacterium is a major health problem. It can cause severe brain damage and is often fatal, even with proper treatment. There are several vaccines available that offer protection against some forms of meningitis, but as yet there is no vaccine that can prevent all forms of the disease. A discovery reported in this month's issue of Nature Medicine could bring scientists one step closer toward a universal meningococcal vaccine. The report relates to the way in which invasive meningococcus bacteria invade human cells in the bloodstream. Researchers at France's INSERM had already shown that the bacteria use a hair-like appendage called the type 4 pilus to anchor onto the human cell, but they didn't know what part of the pilus was the exact docking agent. Moreover, they didn't know what protein on the human cell provided the docking station. Through a series of intricate experiments reported in the July issue of Nature Medicine, they've now shown that CD147, a member of the immunoglobin superfamily, is the human receptor for type 4 pilus-mediated adhesion. With that knowledge, says study author Sandrine Bourdelous, the researchers could then narrow down the search for the most important pilus components. Once we had the receptor, we could uh, try to look for the bacterial ligand involved in this interaction. Bourdelous and her colleagues showed that two subunits, PIL-E and PIL-V, interact with CD147 to enable vascular colonization by the bacterial pathogen. To disrupt this interaction and hopefully prevent infection, Bordelous plans now to dig even deeper and find what precise parts of the PILI and PILV subunits are binding to CD147 on the human cell. We want to know uh, the precise epitope which is involved in this interaction. And our idea is to design antibodies uh, against uh, these epitopes. Such an antibody, Bordelous says, could open the path to new vaccine strategies against meningococcal infection. Uh, we assume that uh, this antibody should prevent uh, the interaction uh, between the type of pillar and the receptor. So this could be then used as a nice strategy to avoid uh, the vascular colonization by this bacteria. Much work remains ahead to safely and therapeutically prevent the type 4 pillus interacting with CD147, but at least the researchers have a sense now of what to look for. It's going to be more at the structural level now to understand how this works. You can find a link to Sandrine Bourdelous' study on our website, nature.com slash naturemedicine. Cancer studies performed in a petri dish generally use immortalized cell lines that have been manipulated with hundreds, if not thousands, of mutations. This enables the cells to live forever in the laboratory. 
but these cells are so far removed from the natural condition where just a few mutations are often needed to make a healthy cell cancerous. An alternate cancer model involves studying human tumors in vivo in a living mouse. But animal research is laborious and time-consuming. As reported in this month's issue of Nature Medicine, there is now a third option. Enter the organoid. With the organoids, you have the ability to grow normal tissue with zero mutations. Stanford University's Calvin Kuo, the study's senior author. So we really view the organoids overall as a hybrid in between the experimental tractability of 2D cell cultures, uh, transformed cell lines, and the in vivo situation. What exactly does an organoid look like, and how do you build it? The organoids are typically uh, aggregates of cells. They can have outpouchings uh, representing uh, differentiated structures, crypt-like areas of proliferation. And there are several ways to build organoids. Uh, the way that we talked about in this paper utilizes what is called an air-liquid interface in which you have tissue explants, which are essentially minced uh, tissues that are placed into a collagen gel. Uh, these are exposed directly to air on top. And the tissue culture media permeates into the gel through an outer dish, and that outer dish media can enter the inner trans well through a permeable membrane. Well, how well do these organoid models of the gastrointestinal cancers actually seem to recapitulate the disease in the culture? They recapitulate quite well. We are able to very accurately model both uh, multi-hit requirements as well as glandular structures of uh, histologic features of tumors in vivo. Now that you've validated the system, how do you see the organoids being used? There are many, many ways uh, that we see. Uh, one is to validate new oncogenes and tumor suppressors. Uh, since you can start off with normal, you can introduce these genetic manipulations uh, for putative oncogenes or tumor suppressors or epigenetic alterations into the cultures and read out with some degree of throughput. Okay, so oncogene discovery, that's one. Uh, other types of uh, studies that I think would be possible would be tumor evolution, tumor genomic evolution, because you can uh, see how uh, introduce oncogenes, tumor suppressors into the cultures and repetitively sample the uh, cultures over time. Uh, passage, sample, passage, sample, and then look at how tumor genomes evolve. Uh, there are other questions of, for instance, oncogene order. In the organoid cultures, given the kind of throughput that you have, you can start with ground zero, but you can insert oncogenes in different temporal orders and see how that could change uh, the transformation process in uh, many different types of endpoints. What about drug discovery? Yes, uh, that's something that uh, I think would be very interesting, something that we're actively pursuing. It's uh, to be able to create cell lines, uh, not really cell lines, but organoids that are that have particular mutational context in a very pure way, uh, and to certainly, as you as you're alluding to, uh, create uh, small molecule screens. Calvin Quo. We end this month now with a report that details the genetic cause of two male reproductive birth defects. 
namely cryptorchidism, a condition in which the testicles fail to move down from the abdomen, and hypospadias, where the opening of the urethra lands on the underside of the penis. Both problems can stem from changes in the number of copies of a gene called VAMP7, a discovery that was many years in the making, explains Dolores Lamb, director of the Center for Reproductive Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and the senior author of a new nature medicine study. We had a previous publication in PLOS One where we had taken, um, I think it was 114 children with uh, various genitourinary birth defects and um, a clinically validated array CGH platform was used to look for um, small chromosomal gains and losses um, in these children that were de novo and not present in the parents. And when we did this, we realized that children um, with the same birth defect clustered at certain regions on various chromosomes. And that allowed us to identify a gene on the X chromosome, which was the only gene duplicated um, in two children, with one with hypospadias and one with cryptorchidism. And how common is this gene copy number alteration in children who have this the duplication that we found, um, the gain of VAMP7, was present in about one and a half, just under one and a half percent of the children with these birth defects, but not present in almost 9,000 individuals who did not have these birth defects. Well, what is it that this gene VAMP7 is doing? So VAMP7 is um, what's known as a snare protein and it essentially traffics other proteins in the cell. So it moves um, proteins from one region of, a, of the cell itself to another. So in this case, it's taking proteins to the endosomes. And to find what else it might be interacting with, you studied the gene in mice? We had a gain of VAMP7 in the mouse, um, and then the mice had cryptorchidism, and they had penile defects, some, some of which um, were similar to hypospadias. Penile development is a little different in mice, but, but certainly the mice were all cryptorchid, and uh, the majority also had some penile defects, and they had micropenis as well. What was happening at the hormone level in these mice? So we found a modest effect on androgen receptor action where we were essentially blunting the transcriptional activity or the ability of the androgen receptor to induce the expression of genes that alter the function of cells. Um, and importantly to us, the mice also appeared um, to have a partially feminized appearance to be similar to mice um, that had been treated with estrogens during development. And so that led us to also investigate the estrogen receptor. And we found that estrogen receptor action was hugely increased um, by the extra dose of VAMP7. So essentially, we were blunting the, the male hormone responsive development and enhancing the response to estrogen, leading to a femini more feminized development. Now, hypospadias and some of these other defects are currently treated surgically, 
Does yes. does the finding of Vamp Seven's involvement give us a drug target, or is it too late by the time these children are born? So so normally these birth defects are not identified um, prior to birth. Um, and so at this point in time, uh, it would not be helpful, although, um, you know, there may be other applications, um, and perhaps some of these individuals um, have problems in adulthood as well. So, for example, the older mice ended up with um, problems of sperm production, and this was a different appearance of the testis than what we would normally see if the testis was not descended. If these problems in the testes are stemming from the increased gene dosage of VAMP7, does that suggest that perhaps if we target VAMP7 and reduce its levels, maybe we can overcome these defects in later adulthood? So it's possible that we might be able to do this. VAMP7 is highly expressed in the brain. Um, so I think we would need to understand the role of VAMP7 in the brain before we would do a clinical intervention um, to try to decrease the, the protein expression. Dolores Lam. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast, but there's plenty more to be found in the July issue of the journal, including a story about a proposal to map all the transmission routes by which pathogens make the species jump into humans. You can find a link to that or anything you heard about on this month's show on our website, which has a new look. Check it out at nature.com slash nature medicine. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dolgan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>